Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Sarah Kelly, and with me, I have Mian Wang and Brian Lee. Uh, we're going to do a presentation today on personal jurisdiction. Uh, I am a partner at Nutter, McLaren and Fish. I'm in the litigation department. I've been there for uh, almost 20 years now. And I'll let Mian and Brian introduce themselves in a minute, uh, just to give you an overview of what we're going to talk about today. Mian's going to start. Um, there's been a lot of activity at the Supreme Court over the last decade in the personal jurisdiction space. She's going to give us an overview of what's been going on in that space, what those cases mean um, for this area of the law. And then Brian is going to take over and talk a bit about uh, more particularly what's going on with the law in Massachusetts in terms of personal jurisdiction, where there are distinctions. Um, what wrinkles have arisen in recent years. And finally, I am going to talk a bit about the nuts and bolts of filing a personal jurisdiction motion, things to think about, uh, issues that can arise if, if you do have a case where filing one makes sense. Uh, we hope that this is interactive. If you have any questions, like Devin said, feel free to put them, I think, in the question and answer box. Um, no need to wait till the end, and we will try try to answer them um, as we go along. Um, so I'll turn it over to me and, and Brian, do you wanna introduce yourselves? Uh, sure. Um, so my name is Mian Wong. I'm a shareholder with Greenberg Traurig. Um, I've been practicing over a decade and my primary practice is in commercial litigation, um, focusing on uh, various corporate malfeasance on the civil side. I'm Brian Lee. I'm also a partner at Nutter McLaren and Fish in the litigation department. Um, I focus primarily on commercial, real estate, and product liability litigation. All right. So uh, I will jump in uh, and talk about the Supreme Court precedent over the last decade. Um, starting off, um, we'll just lay the ground uh, work for types of personal jurisdiction. There's general jurisdiction um, where it's a corporation that can be sued for any and all claims, and there's no additional showing that is necessary in terms of making a connection between the uh, plaintiff's claims and the defendant's activities in the state forum. Um, then there is specific jurisdiction um, in a nutshell uh, it means jurisdiction, particular to the out-of-state defendants, specific contexts or activities in the forum state. So I think um, all of us are familiar with international shoe. It's the first articulable test for when personal jurisdiction can be granted over an out-of-state defendant. Um, the test there can be summarized as um, having requiring the out-of-state defendant to have minimal contacts with the forum state. Um, such that the the lawsuit um, and the jurisdiction over the corporate defendant is reasonable and does not offend uh, traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice. So we're going to fast forward a, a few decades and bring us to 2014. Um, these two cases that I'm going to be talking about from the Supreme Court um, speaks to general jurisdiction, and you'll see that it clarifies. Um, when, per, uh, excuse me, general jurisdiction may be asserted over out-of-state corporate defendant. 
In Daimler AG versus Bauman, um, the issue there is whether it violated due process for a court to exercise general jurisdiction over an out-of-state defendant solely on the fact that its subsidiary performed services on behalf of the defendant in the foreign state. The facts of that case is uh, quite interesting. Uh, it arose out of alleged human rights violations during Argentina's dirty war in the 1970s um, by Daimler Chrysler subsidiary uh, Mercedes-Benz Argentina. So the harms alleged took place in Argentina by an Argentinian uh, subsidiary. However, the plaintiffs decided to sue Daimler Chrysler, which was is a German company, um, and alleging that jurisdiction, general jurisdiction, is appropriate because of uh, Mercedes-Benz USA, um, which is a subsidiary of Daimler Chrysler. Um, they, the plaintiffs sued a Northern District of California uh, on the theory that um, Mercedes-Benz distributed Daimler Chrysler's manufactured vehicles in California. Ultimately, the Supreme Court um, held that a corporation is, quote unquote, at home for purposes of general jurisdiction only in uh two locations, one, the state in which it is incorporated, and second, in the state in which it maintains its principal place of business. So from Daimler, um, the test for ju jurist general jurisdiction for corporate out-of-state corporate defendant um, is has been clarified in those two instances. And then we fast forward about three years later, um, BNSF Railway um, reinforces what the um, Supreme Court said in Daimler. That case arose out of two plaintiffs filing separate cases in Montana State Court against their employer, BNS Railway, under the Federal Employers Liability Act um, for injuries received on the job. The Montana connections were limited. The plaintiffs did not live or work in Montana, were not injured in Montana, um, and the railway defendant is a Delaware corporation with a principal business in Texas. Um, but the jurisdictional hook that plaintiffs argued was that BNSF Railway had over 2,000 miles of railroad and over 2,000 employees working in Montana. The Supreme Court ultimately reinforced the general jurisdiction test that it articulated in Daimler, um, but also reiterated, reiterated an quote-unquote exceptional case that um, Daimler pointed out, where a corporation's operation in another forum may be so substantial and of such a nature as to render the corporation at home in that state. Um, that exceptional case um, should be narrowly construed. And the example that the Supreme Court gave was, um, in, I think in the Second World War, um, there was a company that was based in the Philippines and due to uh, wartime activities, it had to relocate from the Philippines in Ohio, to Ohio. So that is, as you can see, it's fairly rare. Um, ultimately, what we're left with now is the general jurisdiction test articulated in Daimler. Um, also in 2017, the Supreme Court um, 
spoke on specific jurisdiction, um, a Myers-Squibb co company versus superior court. Um, the issue there is whether a California court could properly exercise jurisdiction over Bristol Myers Squibb, an out-of-state corporate defendant, in an action brought over 600 plaintiffs, most of whom resided outside of California. Um, I believe in that case, only about 686 of the plaintiffs were California residents. Um, Bristol um, Myers Squibb, argue that it was incorporated in Delaware, it was headquartered in New York, and did most of its business in New Jersey. Uh, it also demonstrated that it did not manufacture, promote, test, label, package, or distribute any of the anticoagulants um, that was at issue um, in the case allegedly caused the plaintiff's harm in California, and the sale of those uh, of the anticoagulants accounted only for 1.1% of um, the company's total revenue. On the other hand, the plaintiffs argue that um, Bristol Myers Squibbs had five research facilities in California, employed 164 people, employed additional 250 sales rep, and maintained an office in Sacramento for uh, lobbying purposes. And also that it sold nearly a billion dollars worth of anticoagulants in California in a six-year period. Uh, ultimately, the California Appellate Court uh, initially held that there was jurisdiction, general jurisdiction, but then the California Supreme Court um, remanded the case back to um, the lower courts to uh, reconsider the issue in light of Damier. Ultimately, the um, U.S. Supreme Court held that there was no specific jurisdiction. I believe the California Appellate Court found that there was specific jurisdiction. So uh, the Supreme Court overturned that decision, holding that there was no specific jurisdiction because um, even though the defendants actively marketed and sold the product in California, the non-resident plaintiffs themselves didn't use the product in California, did not reside there, and um, their, the non-resident plaintiffs' injuries did not, quote-unquote, arise out of or relate to, which is the um, um, term phrase um, associated with specific jurisdiction, um, did not arise out of or relate to the defendant's contacts with California. If I can just jump in real sure. quickly on to, um, I happen to have a case in California before this case was decided. And I know we're not here to learn about California law, but I think the Supreme Court there, you probably came across this in the opinion, used like a sliding scale approach, which was sort of a mishmash of general jurisdiction and specific jurisdiction. It was basically like, well, you have some contacts, you sold some product here, and we, we're going to use that. And there's a little bit of specific jurisdiction. So they sort of mesh them together, taking contacts that weren't related to, to the case itself and on a sliding scale approach found jurisdiction. And I think, I don't know if the language in the case specifically says that, but the, the Supreme Court was rejecting that sliding scale and more saying, no, no, it has to be specific jurisdiction. If it's not general, it has to be like relating to, if I'm, I'm remembering correctly. Um, and then so building on a Bristol-Myers Squibb, um, just in more recently in F Ford Motor um, versus Montana, uh, the Supreme Court actually, 
I guess, clarifies um, the arise out of or relate to um, phrase associated with specific jurisdiction. In that case, um, there, there were two car accidents involving a four cars. Um, Ford argued that it didn't design, manufacture, or sell either of the vehicle um, in, in Montana, but um, the plaintiffs argued, and I think the Montana court held that it, uh, Ford did advertise the types of the vehicles involved in accidents uh, as sold and repaired vehicles through dealerships in Montana. Um, and ultimately, the Supreme Court, what it held was um, the phrase arise out of or relate to actually are two distinct ways for a claim to satisfy specific jurisdiction arise out of refers to cases in which the plaintiff's harm was caused by the defendant's contacts with the foreign state, whereas related to uh, addresses how a defendant's contact with that foreign state were closely related to the injury, um, even without any showing that the contacts themselves had any causal relationship with the alleged harm. So um, those four cases really clarifies um, the current uh, state of law um, with respect to general jurisdiction and specific jurisdiction. Currently, there is a case um, that was argued last year, uh, Mallory versus Norfolk Southern Railroad. Um, the issue there is whether a state, um, in the, that case, Pennsylvania, can require a foreign corporation to consent to general personal jurisdiction as a requirement of registering to do business in the state, even if the corporation was not headquartered there and the conduct at issue occurred somewhere else. So it's another injury on the job case. The plaintiff sued Norfolk Southern Railroad uh, Railway in Pennsylvania for claims arising out of FILA. Uh, alleging that he has suffered injuries while working on the job in Ohio and um, Virginia. Uh, the Norfolk Southern Railway argue that the statutory scheme was unconstitutional under the due process clause. The trial court agreed uh, with the um, railway and the decision was affirmed by the Supreme uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments last November, one would think, under Daimler and BNSF. Um, those holdings would suggest that the Supreme Court would likely affirm uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision, but we will wait and see. So that concludes the um, overview of the um, Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court. I will stop sharing my screen. Great. So I think uh, Sarah, and, Sarah and me are, are going next. So um, in this part two, uh, can everyone? All right. Great. So um, I'm going to talk about some recent uh, significant cases in Massachusetts in the First Circuit. Um, the reality is that most of these personal jurisdiction cases are not decided in the United States Supreme Court. And so it's really up to the local courts to apply the Supreme Court's rulings and really kind of fill in the gaps. And for that reason, the decisions coming out of these local jurisdictions are um, sometimes just as important as the U.S. Supreme Court cases. So the first case I want to talk about is Scavenger versus Punch. 
This is a case from the uh, Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court from 2017. Um, and in this case, so Scavenger did, does business as uh, Level Up and Level Up is a Massachusetts-based software company. Um, they filed a lawsuit against their California-based competitor in the business litigation session here in Massachusetts State Court, um, alleging defamatory statements by punch to its customers. Now, initially, uh, these two were actually business partners, but um, Punch was uh, saying allegedly defamatory things about Level Up to the customers, and so Level Up terminated the relationship. And then uh, Punch continued to make those statements after they broke their breakup. And so um, Level Up filed a lawsuit. Punch moved to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction, and uh, the court allowed some limited limited jurisdictional discovery. This case was before Judge Kaplan, who um, granted the motion to dismiss after that discovery on federal due process grounds without considering the Massachusetts long arm statute, then level up appeal. So taking a, a quick step back, um, in our federalist system, there are two sources that govern a court's personal jurisdiction or an out-of-state defendant. There's the Massachusetts long arm statute or the state's long arm statute here, we're talking about Massachusetts, and then the, uh, the due process limitations. Um, so, Judge Kaplan, well, real quick. So this is the uh, a copy of the Massachusetts long arm statute. As you can see, there's uh, eight different scenarios where an out-of-state defendant can be subject to personal jurisdiction in Massachusetts, according to our legislator. Um, and as you can see, some of these are pretty broad. For example, section A is transacting any business in this commonwealth. So Judge Kaplan, as I mentioned, skipped right to the federal due process analysis. And doing so made a lot of sense at that time. So in Scavenger, the first of all, the parties focused their arguments on the due process aspect of this. Um, a state's long arm statute is limited by the federal due process clause. And so many states actually have interpreted their long arm statute as uh, broadly in scope as the due process clause allows, which really serves to uh, consolidate the two, the two analyses. Um, and there's actually some Supreme Court precedent, US, uh, sorry, Massachusetts Supreme Court precedent that indicated that that was also the case in Massachusetts. Um, also, as Mian started out, uh, for the past decade, the US Supreme Court has clarified and really narrowed the due process clause requirements. And so that is often where defendants would look to in order to find limitations uh, in, the, in asserting these personal jurisdiction defenses. Uh, so the Supreme Judicial Court disagreed, however, and uh, first of all held that the jurisdictional inquiry is twofold. You have to look at the state long arm statute separately from the federal due process clause because they are separate analyses, they are not the same. They also said that the court should avoid unnecessary constitutional decisions, um, which, you know, to the, in other words, to the extent the court doesn't have to decide a constitutional issue, they should refrain from doing so. So putting those two things together, um, the court held that there's a rule in, under Massachusetts law that you first have to analyze the long arm statute before you can get to the due process analysis. And so the Supreme Court Supreme Judicial Court remanded the case to the Superior Court to do just that. And I think to, to no one's surprise, um, the court found the in the lower court, Judge Kaplan, that 
the long arm statute requirements were not met and federal due process was still not satisfied. So this ruling didn't really change the result in this case. It really just kind of set this framework for um, how personal jurisdiction motions are presented and decided in Massachusetts. Um, it also, uh, and this is something that Sarah will touch on uh, in a little bit, but it, it, I think it has a potential to really impact jurisdictional discovery. Um, Sarah will talk about this, but I think it kind of opens the door potentially to some jurisdictional uh, discovery that perhaps was not available before this. Next case I want to talk about is Guan Chen versus United States Sports Academy. This is the First Circuit's uh, most recent internet meets personal jurisdiction case. This was out of the First Circuit from 2020. So there the plaintiff had enrolled in an online um, educational courses uh, through USSA. USSA is based in Alabama and they primarily offer online education. So the plaintiff initially started taking these classes while he also lived in Alabama, um, but at some point took a break. There was a, a 10 year limitation on when you could basically get this degree. He was trying to get a PhD. And um, so he took a break and then started back up years later once he'd moved to Massachusetts, still within this 10 year window. When he tried to sign on, he found out that he was locked out of his account and the degree requirements had changed, which prevented him from getting this, this PhD. So then he sues in Massachusetts State Court. The case gets removed to federal court and uh, the federal district court in Massachusetts dismissed the case and Chen appealed. So the court first addressed general jurisdiction and applying some of the cases that Mian uh, started out by talking, um, said that there was no general jurisdiction here. And this this was really kind of a simple, uh, an easy decision for them. So USSA, as I mentioned, is, is located in Alabama. There were only two uh, students enrolled in, uh, in, in these online courses that lived in Massachusetts at that time. And so the mere fact the court found that um, this learning platform was available online, including to people in Massachusetts, didn't make USSA at home in Massachusetts. Now the court did leave open this possibility that a pervasive virtual presence in a forum could give rise to a finding that the defendants at home in the forum state, recognizing that corporations can have multiple homes, um, but they didn't really explain, uh, explain what they meant by that. And in the world where you know internet activities is pretty generally available, um, it's not really clear how that would play out. And so that, that's maybe an issue to be uh, decided in the future. Um, the real fight in this case was over specific jurisdiction, which I would say I, I think is often the case these days following the Supreme Court's narrowing of general jurisdiction. And in the specific jurisdiction context, a lot of the fights end up being about what forum related activities are relevant and whether they're sufficient. Because when you have general jurisdiction, you know, everything counts. Specific jurisdiction, as Mian mentioned, is really supposed to be tied more closely to the claim at issue in the case. And so in an effort to kind of uh, define what activities are uh, relevant and sufficient, there are the, the courts have developed these three prongs of specific jurisdiction. There's the relatedness prong, which is that the claim must directly arise from or relate to the defendant's activities in the forum the purposeful availment prong, which is that 
the, the contacts must represent a purposeful availment of the privilege of conducting activities in the state. And then there's the reasonable reasonableness prong, which is really just a backstop for the court to, uh, to say, you know, if, if jurisdiction is still has to be reasonable under the circumstances of our case. So with that in mind, the, the fight in this case was over the purposeful availment prong. And um, Judge Selya uh, wrote the decision for the court um, holding that merely making the website available in Massachusetts isn't, isn't sufficient, particularly since there's no evidence that USSA targeted or received substantial revenue from other Massachusetts-based students. Now, one interesting aspect of this case is uh, the court did suggest that if they had had substantial revenue from other Massachusetts-based students um, under a, quote, holistic approach, there is the possibility that purposeful availment prong could be satisfied. Um, and this is, you know, kind of significant because it indicates that um, in the specific jurisdiction context where, you know, there's really supposed to be some connection between the, um, the form-related contacts and the claims, here they're saying, well, um, actually contacts having nothing to do with the plaintiff or the claims could potentially satisfy this one piece of the uh, of, of specific jurisdiction. Um, the court also found there's no evidence that USSA knew that Chen had uh, moved to Massachusetts or was paying um, tuition for Massachusetts. And so based on all of that, the court found that there was no personal jurisdiction here and dismissed the case. Um, next case I want to briefly mention is Azumi. So in Azumi, this is a District of Massachusetts case from August of 2022. Um, in this case, so in 2007, Azumi, which is based in England, got into a trademark dispute with BB Kitchen, who's based out of Massachusetts, over the operation of restaurants with the Zuma name. Um, so the parties uh, eventually entered into a settlement agreement and a license agreement where Zumi got the mark and it licensed to BB the exclusive right to use that mark in New England. So flash forward 10 years and Zumi reaches out to the same Florida-based law firm about whether it could operate a Zuma-based, uh, Zuma-branded restaurant in Boston. And in response, according to Azumi, um, it, it was told that there was no restriction um, on that operation. So Azumi went ahead and opened a Boston Zuma restaurant, which quickly uh, was subjected to a legal challenge by BB Kitchen. And according to Azumi, as a result of that, it had to settle that case at a substantial expense. Azumi then turned around and brought a lawsuit against its former law firm in federal court in the District of Massachusetts. Um, and the law firm moved to, to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. So Judge Gordon issued the decision there. Um, and when you have a diversity suit in federal court, the court looks to the personal jurisdiction law in the forum state, here that's Massachusetts. And so uh, citing to the scavenger case, we started out by talking about from 2017, the court um, engaged in analysis of, of the long arm statute first. Here, the plaintiffs relied on section 3A of the long arm statute, which I mentioned relates to defendant transacting business in the Commonwealth. Um, and Azumi asserted that uh, there were various points of contact that satisfied this. So there's the, the law firm had an international practice, 
Um, the settlement agreement made reference to, to Boston and then BB Kitchen and the, the legal advice um, involving BB, uh, from the law firm related to the operation of the Zuma restaurant in Boston. The court, however, disagreed with the Zoom and found that section three of the long arm statute wasn't satisfied focused on the fact that the trademark dispute was in Virginia, settlement was negotiated between the firms in Florida and York. Um, there's only kind of minor references to Massachusetts in the settlement documents and the claims at issue in this case arose from advice given from Florida to Azumi in London. And as a result of that, the court said that the long arm statute was not satisfied and in accordance with that scavenger case, did not turn to the federal due process clause uh, analysis because it found that there was no need to since there was no personal jurisdiction under the long arm statute. Now in federal court, instead of dismissal, when the court finds that there's jurisdiction in a, perhaps another jurisdiction in the federal court, what the court can actually do is transfer the case. So that's what happened here is the case got transferred to federal court in Florida. So, the last case I want to mention is this Nanju versus Marriott International case. It's a First Circuit case from 2021. And I want to talk about it because I think it presents some of the challenges we have these days when um, presenting these types of personal jurisdiction motions to the court. So in that case, a father and son drowned in a Marriott hotel pool in Canada. Um, their estate filed a wrongful death action against Marriott and the hotel owner. Um, the case was removed from state court where it was originally filed into federal district court. District court found that there was personal jurisdiction, but it actually dismissed on separate grounds on forum non-convenes grounds and the plaintiff appealed. And on appeal, the court, the the Court of Appeals actually overruled the forum non-convenes ruling, and so it then had to turn to the personal jurisdiction aspect to see whether there was personal jurisdiction in the case. The key kind of jurisdictional fact that was issued in the case was that um, the defendant, Marriott, had mailed three advertisements to the defendant, to the, I'm sorry, that should be plaintiffs in Massachusetts, promoting the Marriott Hotel in Canada. And according to the family, this actually induced the family to go to Canada to visit that hotel. So this is just a reminder about the three prongs about specific jurisdiction. Here in this case, the relatedness prong was at issue. The, the Marriott defendants argued that the relatedness prong wasn't satisfied because the uh, mailings did not proximately cause the drownings. So the First Circuit says, yes, you're right about the standard. Courts should use a proximate cause standard in looking at the relatedness prong. But they said, that's not really a strict standard. Um, and instead, we have this precedent from 1996 in the First Circuit, which, which says that where a corporation directly targets residents um, in an ongoing business effort and it's successful, then guess what? That business is gonna be responsible subject to, to suit in our court system um, for any tort that results. Court also does distinguish between kind of general advertisements that are on the internet versus what happened here, which was more of a targeted mailing to specific individuals for the uh, location where the, the, the drownings actually occurred. And the court ultimately held that specific jurisdiction over the Marriott defendants and the hotel owner existed. 
The reason why I wanted to talk about this case is because I think it just really demonstrates some of the challenges in dealing with personal jurisdiction these days. So courts have spent the past 80 plus years breaking down personal jurisdiction and defining the requirements of personal jurisdiction and what standards should apply. Um, but each case is fact specific and how those standards apply is not always clear. Also, this dynamic is more complicated because of the fundamental shift we've seen in personal jurisdiction over the past decade plus um, and how those changes mesh with or don't mesh with existing precedent. So for that reason, I, you know, kind of hitting back the point I started with, I think it's important to both know the U.S. Supreme Court decisions on personal jurisdiction, but the decisions out of the jurisdiction you're filing in, I think, are equally important to know. With that, I'll turn it over to Sarah. Okay, thanks, Brian. I I noticed we have a question in the question and answer um, box. I'll take a stab and. Brian and me and feel free to weigh in. The question is, how does the nerve center analysis fit in? Where does that come from? And I think, I hope I'm not wrong here. I think the nerve center analysis has to do with diversity jurisdiction, determining whether um, you know, somebody's at home for diversity purposes. So I've never seen it in the personal jurisdiction context in terms of trying to figure out whether some a corporation is at home um, needing analysis, because I think probably both the corporation's principal place of business and um, state of incorporation are fair game under Daimler. But what do you guys, you guys think? I could be off on the nerve center analysis. I, I agree with you uh, completely, Sarah. The nerve center is really for determining the principal place of business, which sometimes might be um, difficult to determine, um, and that relates to diversity jurisdiction. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, it could. I, the person just said, "Yeah, it applies to to diversity jurisdiction." I I think it it could could be a personal jurisdiction concept, but I've I haven't seen it come up in in this space. Yeah. Usually. Uh where a business is located is not, I mean, it, there's certainly some gray areas, but I think often the case it's, it's your, you know, you look to where they're incorporated and where they're headquartered and there isn't, you know, there may be some gray area to fight over that, but for the most part, um, these fights on personal jurisdiction are less about that and more about what your contacts are with the, with the relevant forum and, and whether or not that uh, satisfies personal jurisdiction. Okay. Oh, well, thank you. I was just gonna um, round out the presentation by talking a bit about, I guess, the nuts and bolts of, of bringing one of these motions. I think we have a range of participants today in terms of whether you've never brought a PJ motion, um, or you know we've done it several times. Um, so feel free to ask questions or bring your own experience uh, experience to bear. Um, so in terms of the mechanics, Brian, yeah, thank you. Brian's handling the slides because I'm technologically <laughs> he already has it under control. Thank you. Um, 
So it's a 12B2 motion under both the Massachusetts rules of civil procedure um, and and the federal rules. So uh, as you can see, this is one of those motions that in this jurisdiction you need to assert in your responsive pleading. Um, so when you when you um, instead of answering the complaint, you would file a motion to dismiss based on this lack of personal jurisdiction. It's one of those defenses you have to raise right right away. Um, under the Massachusetts and federal rules, it's preserved once you do so. Um, it used to be the case in some states, I think, that you you could waive jurisdiction sort of by by participating in the case, like if discovery went forward. Um, but once you do raise the motion, um, should be uh, on firm ground. Um, and unlike a 12B6 motion, when you bring your 12B2 motion, you're you're permitted and in many cases sort of you have to bring in facts outside of the complaint. So the court doesn't have to take everything as true in the complaint or only look at the four corners. It's it's different than a 12B6 motion um, in that way. OK, next slide. Thank you. Um, Generally speaking, uh, it's a plaintiff's burden uh, to show that there is personal jurisdiction. The exercise is appropriate over the defendant. So it's it, as it's going through these slides, it gets a bit confusing because it's it's a defendant bringing the motion, but at the end of the day, it's it's a plaintiff's burden to establish those facts. Um, the plaintiff often asserts some jurisdictional facts in its complaint, whether it's the place of business, um, principal place of business or state of incorporation, or perhaps there are more specific jurisdiction oriented facts about where specific things related to the case um, occurred. So those may be in the complaint uh, at a defendant uh, in bringing its motion to dismiss often supports a motion with an affidavit with its own jurisdictional facts. Um, you could obviously state the the um, the defendant's place of business, principal place of business and state of incorporation, uh, perhaps uh, testify that there are not many employees in Massachusetts, that the defendant doesn't own property, the defendant pays minimal taxes, the defendant only generates a certain amount of revenue from sales in Massachusetts. There's a lot of ways um, to sort of convince a court you have very minimal contacts with the state. Um, in terms of general jurisdiction, as Brian was saying, um, really for Supreme Court precedent, the focus should be on where the corporation is at home. But in terms of giving the court some context about the overall contacts with the state and complying with the long arm statute, um, putting forward those facts of the, the corporation sort of non-connection to Massachusetts or uh, what you need to do when you bring bring these motions. And the burden, um, basically it's then in the plaintiff's court uh, to come forward with facts that show that the defendant is subject to jurisdiction. Um, and we'll talk about how the plaintiff can do that. It's generally by uh, discovery requests um, and getting information from the defendant on its contacts with the forum state. Um, but the plaintiff at the end of the day is the one that's going to have to make that showing for the court. Um, when thinking about why filing this motion, like why file this motion, um, 
if if you're just going to have to face a lawsuit in another state, um, there there are some questions I think that are a good idea to think about, analyze with your client. Um, first of all, is this an unfavorable forum um, for some reason? Do you think the jury pool will not be what you're looking for? Um, is there some reason you prefer, you know, not to be with the procedural rules of this state? Um, that would be one reason to file a personal jurisdiction motion. Um, it could be that the case has been brought in what's considered an inconvenient or unfamiliar location for either the client um, or its lawyers. Uh, some small businesses who are very used to the courts in one particular state or their lawyers all practice in one state uh, are uncomfortable, obviously, in a different state where they don't know um, the local practice or the lawyers. And certainly that's a reason to file a specific jurisdiction motion to get to get um, to get a case back in a defendant's home court. Um, and the last consideration uh, that I can think of is, you know, there are some some times when you can at least um, think there's a chance that a plaintiff won't refile in a different state after losing on a motion to dismiss, perhaps if the plaintiff as a very local company or an individual without significant resources um, and won't want to spend the money on a new local counsel and filing a new lawsuit. There are also instances, I think Bristol-Myers Squibb was one of these cases where there are many defendants, um, many of whom are amenable to jurisdiction in the place where the plaintiff brings suit because it's their um, at-home state or they had significant contacts um, related to the suit there, but perhaps one defendant didn't, and that defendant um, is dismissed on personal jurisdiction. Um, and so if, if that's the case and you think the plaintiff will not bother to refile against one lone defendant in what's a much bigger case, um, there is certainly a good reason to file that motion to dismiss with the hopes that the plaintiff won't refile and the lawsuit will go away. In terms of reasons that you might not want to expend the resources to file a personal jurisdiction motion, um, even if you uh, you win and the case is refiled somewhere else, it, it won't change the, the applicable substantive law. Um, obviously, that, that will be a choice of law analysis that the court will need to do no matter where you are. Um, you might educate the opposing party about your case before you're sort of really ready to in terms of taking the case on the merits under the specific jurisdiction analysis. Um, the court needs to look at all of the conduct that took place in the forum state that's related to, and some of them are very fact, excuse me, fact specific in terms of determining, you know, who did what and which state and reaching into the state or purposefully availing themselves of the benefits of doing business there. I um, mean, all of those facts might need to be set forth in an affidavit or in discovery, um, sort of nailing down your case um, and pointing it in a way that you might not be ready to at such an early stage of the case. Um, finally, and sort of the flip side of the reasons um, to file is, need to consider where your case might end up. Where are you amenable to suit? Um, it'll be the plaintiff's choice to, to decide where the, the lawsuit will be. Um, 
And would you prefer to be in that particular jurisdiction rather than Massachusetts or wherever the original case was filed? Brian mentioned earlier, the federal court does have the power, and I think is encouraged in some instances to transfer the case rather than dismissing it. Um, and so if the federal court is going to transfer that case, it's important to think about where you're going to end up. Um, and then so the biggest, uh, one of the biggest downsides anyway of filing a motion to dismiss is I think that plaintiffs routinely ask for discovery in response to a motion to dismiss on jurisdictional grounds. Um, and because the plaintiff is the one that has to put forward the jurisdictional facts, uh, courts can be reluctant to deny requests for discovery. Um, and I've seen... Um, uh, you guys have other experiences, feel free to jump in. I've seen very broad ranging discovery. Um, you can find about, about uh, defendants' taxes in Massachusetts, its sales, all its employees. It can go very broadly into the contacts with the forum state. And as I said earlier, could ask very specific questions about the lawsuit and the contacts that a defendant's employees had Um with the state. So that's a lot of discovery to do at the very beginning of the case before you've really wrapped your arms around it and give sort of the plaintiff a, a leg up uh, getting all that information early. It can be a considerable expense and just bring a whole nother aspect um, to the case when you're litigating it. So it's certainly something to think about and certainly warn your clients that, you know, you have this, this great jurisdictional motion, but they may need to go through discovery uh, to be able to prevail on it. And I have one case that I think is worth um, thinking about related to that point. It's this MODIS LLC versus Car Data. It's from the First Circuit from last year. Um, it was a trademark dispute. The uh, plaintiff was not happy. The defendant had used one of its trademark phrases on its website um, and filed suit over it. The defendant was a Canadian corporation and um, moved to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. Um, the district court granted the motion. Uh, I think that basically the district court found that, well, uh, the defendant maintained a website and some people from Massachusetts looked at it, that really wasn't enough uh, for specific jurisdiction over the company, sort of under some of the standards that Brian articulated earlier. So the district court granted um, the motion to dismiss, and then there was an appeal. And the interesting part of the um, appeal, at least for, for purposes of the things I was thinking about today, if you could flip the slide, Brian, um, the plaintiff had asked uh, for jurisdictional discovery, um, but it hadn't done so in a very formal way. I think um, the First Circuit's opinion says that the plaintiff had asked in its opposition in one line in a footnote saying it needed jurisdictional discovery to oppose the motion. Um, and the district court denied the request for discovery. Um, and the plaintiff appealed the issue saying the district court abused its discretion 
and refusing to allow a discovery, which I think is something a lot of district court judges think about when when denying requests for discovery. They don't want to abuse their discretion. They need a good reason. Um, but the First Circuit supported and upheld the district court's decision and, first of all, noted that um, the request for discovery should have been made by a motion under Rule of Civil Procedure 7B. I don't actually think I've ever seen a party make a separate motion for discovery. So that's definitely something to take note of um, that the First Circuit's not saying you would make a, a request for leave to do jurisdictional discovery in this case. And the appellate court went on to say, you know, you should have filed a motion and also that your request was not specific about what kind of discovery you would take and why it would change the outcome of the motion papers. And without that, uh, the First Circuit found that the district court, you know, made, did not abuse its discretion anyway in not allowing the discovery. So taking, you know, that decision uh, into consideration for the plaintiff um, trying to oppose this motion. I think you want to make your request as specific as possible. Um, you know, make a motion for leave of court to take the discovery. And I think most importantly is tie um, tie the facts to uh, the, the facts that you're seeking to establish to the discovery. Explain why you need it. I don't think it's necessarily enough to say I just need discovery about all contacts with Massachusetts because then I'll win. Because as me and Brian were saying over the past decade, there's definitely been a focus from the Supreme Court on narrowing jurisdiction. It's become much more of a, an available defense than it was 10 years ago. Um, so you can't just show lots of contacts and therefore I have jurisdiction. Um, so making that connection between why those particular facts would establish jurisdiction, I think is important for plaintiffs. <coughs> Excuse me. And on the flip side, I think for defendants opposing the discovery, um, the more that you can establish that, that, the discovery, even if shown, you know, you pay taxes in Massachusetts or your website operates in Massachusetts um, or you have 1500 employees or 2000 miles of railroad track, like whatever it is, that that's not going to be enough over Supreme Court under a Supreme Court precedent. Um, Brian uh, mentioned that the long arm statute sort of throws a monkey wrench in my advice that you, you know, even even if the Supreme Court's been quite clear, the long-arm statute, um, the language is broad in that. So it's something to definitely think about. The long-arm statute, sort of because of the supremacy clause, really can't go beyond, um, beyond the due process limits of the Constitution. But on the other hand, the, the language is broad. So it's important to think about um, what the long-arm statute is allowing. And I think it generally pertains to specific jurisdiction. So you still have to tie those requests to the defendant's um, contacts. But a defendant um, showing that to the court, I think will do a lot in sort of narrowing those requests, which sometimes as a defendant in these cases is, is the best um, that you can do. You're going to have to, to make some discovery, but trying to limit it as much as possible. Uh, preparing specific objections to the requests, I think is a very good idea. Um, to show the judge why they're unreasonable or unnecessary. Um, and I think that if you, you can do that 
and perhaps limit the discovery to written discovery rather than depositions uh, and containing it as much as possible, um, that'll make for a more streamlined uh, process in terms of getting the motion ruled on and heard uh, by the judge and getting the case um, in the jurisdiction, I guess, that it's supposed to be in. So, yeah, I think that's all I had. Um, I saw some questions pop up. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at them. Uh, briefly, so I think um, on the nerve center, um, there are case sites provided by an attendee um, reflecting about nerve center with respect to personal jurisdiction. Um, thank you for that. I suspect it's talking about determination of a principal place of business within the context of personal jurisdiction, but I may be wrong without uh, reviewing the cases. Um, and then we got a question, in the absence of a contract, does the forum control the choice of law? So I, I guess I, I, it's, that's a little bit of a separate uh, legal question, but you know, my understanding of the law is that um, in the absence of a contract, the law in the, the forum uh, will often, you do a choice of law analysis to determine what uh, law actually applies. So it, it can get complicated. I remembered uh, it's whenever you come into contact with a multi-factor test, it's never quite clear and choice of law um, issue is one of those multi-factor tests. And then I think the last question is uh, SJC's most recent word on Doucette versus FCA. Sarah Bryan. Yeah, I'm going to have to look at that one. Yeah, so I, I'm familiar with the case, but not enough probably to give any uh, cogent advice on it at this moment. So um, I am in the same boat. Yeah, we're happy to follow up afterwards. If you want to reach out by email, we can take a second look at that one and and um, and chat about it. And in terms of a PowerPoint um, copy. Uh, I can send mine to Devin um, and then she can um, send it to whoever is interested or um, feel free to reach out to uh, me as well. Yeah, same. All right, let's thank you all. If there's not any other questions, that's what we had on the topic. We appreciate you coming out for lunch and snowy day. Thank you. Thank you. Just want to hop on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today. And thank you to our audience for joining us. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Bye. Bye.